Good morning. I applauded the early crowd on Daylight Savings Time, but I'll applaud you too. You made it. Good job. I love when you guys clap for yourselves. That's my favorite. It's just a moment that I always have up here when that happens. I love it. If you have your Bible, turn with me to John 16, even as the ushers are pastoring our offering. And uh, let me just remind you, if you're a guest with us or if you're new, feel free to let those offering plates pass. This is just part of our worship as followers of Jesus. One of the things we recognize is that we want to take what he's placed in our hands, give it back to him so that it might be used in service to him. And so that's just a regular discipline that we partake of and we're glad to do it. But we hope that this service is a gift to you. Um, So that's why we do this as part of our worship each week. I was thinking of a story. As we uh, come to John 16, we're gonna come to this text that where Jesus is gonna talk to us about the work of the Holy Spirit. That's really what we're gonna put our attention on today. And it reminded me when I was in college, I was 21 years old and went to Billy Graham crusade. Has anyone ever been to a Billy Graham crusade? I mean, at the time it was 1998. And I think we thought this might be one of his last public speaking <laughs> times. We were pretty far off about that. But I went with some friends and we drove to San Antonio. It was a couple hours from where I went to college. And it was in the Alamo Dome, which is a pretty massive building. And uh, so the place was packed and listened to Billy. I, I'd never heard Billy speak before. And I, I listened to him give a gospel presentation. And I'll tell you, one of the things that was revealed about me in that moment is that um, I just thought, wow, I was kind of expecting something that was just like the most profound thing I'd ever heard. And he just gave this very simple gospel presentation. You know, God made you, he loves you. Your sin has separated you from him, but he's done something about that. He sent his son to die on the cross as a payment for your sin. And and then his son rose from the dead. If you believe in him, if you place your faith in him, you can have life forever. You can be with him. You can be reconciled to him. And then he said, maybe it was 20 minutes, you know, and he said, now I'm gonna invite anyone who wants to, to come to know Christ, to come down here and pray with us. And he said, if you already know Christ, I want you to bow your heads and I want you to pray. Pray for those who are the spirits at work in them right now to, to lead them to Christ. And I want you to pray that that would happen. And I remember I bowed my head and in my head and in my heart, I thought to myself, nobody's gonna respond to that. I mean, that was not powerful at all. What was that? And I started to pray. And after praying for like two, three minutes, I was like, because curiosity got the better of me. I was like, I'm just gonna look up and see what's going on. I looked up and thousands of people were streaming down from the upper you know, balconies and, and regions and, and the floor is packed. I mean, I felt like it was me and five people left in the stands, you know? I was like, and God taught me something in that moment. He said, Trent, one, the beauty of the simplicity of the gospel. It's not complex. It's a simple truth. It's powerful. But he taught me too, not to doubt the work of the Holy Spirit, to expect the Spirit to be at work to expect him to be at work. I had another situation like that when I was in college. I helped a friend of mine and I, we started a a prison ministry for juvenile inmates at these uh, facilities around Texas and a couple of them that we worked in. And we would mentor, we recruited college students to just mentor individual inmates who were all violent offenders. And uh, we'd also put on some worship services for them on Sunday afternoons and and do Tuesday evening Bible study. So I spent a good amount of time when I was in college, my last two years of college, in these prisons. And you know, again, I, I was, I think I was 22 at this point. And I, I remember giving, I was responsible for giving the message one Sunday. So I gave it it's my level best to give a sermon. I had no training, no idea kind of how to do it. And I just, so I, I gave the sermon. And afterwards, uh, two young men came up and I was talking with them. 
we kind of had time to discuss. And two of them came up and they said, we're in here because we were participants in organized crime. We're part of the mob. And uh, we know that when we get out, our bosses, the people in charge of us, expect that we're gonna pick right up where we left off. And if we don't do that, there's gonna be a cost to that. And it's probably gonna be our lives. That's what they said to me. They said, but what you said is absolutely true. We believe it and we wanna place our faith in Jesus. And we know that when we leave here, because we've trusted him, we're not gonna be able to do what we did before. And it's probably gonna cost us our lives. I remember thinking to myself, it, it stunned me. It bowled me over. I thought to myself, and again, trusting in my own abilities, I said, I didn't say anything nearly that great. And the Holy Spirit stopped me and he said, do you understand what you're saying or what you're thinking right now? I am winning these young men, these 17-year-old men who are willing to give up their lives because they've found the pearl of great price. They have found me and they know that I'm worth it everything. It's been one of those journeys in my life to, to learn to expect the Spirit is at work. And that's really what John 16 is about. It's about the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of those who don't know Christ, those who have yet to place their faith in him. That's some of you here today. And the expectation that he is at work. And for those of us who are followers of his to expect that he is at work in the lives of those who do not believe in him. And he's inviting you and I to participate in that work. Do you know that? And sometimes it takes just expecting that it's gonna happen. It takes expecting that he is at work to be able to see what he's doing. Do you know that the Holy Spirit is at work in the world today, church family? He is. Do you know that he's inviting you to participate in that work? Yes. So let's get our eyes up. Let's see what he's doing and let's join him. Yes, let's join him. No greater joy than to be a vessel through whom the Spirit works. So as we look at John 16 today, that's sort of our big idea that the Holy Spirit is at work in those who don't believe. And he's inviting those of us who do to participate with him in that work. So I'm gonna read this and then I wanna kind of give you a roadmap for what we're gonna do today. So John 16, beginning the second half of verse four, all the way through verse 15, just continuing in our study of the gospel of John. He says this, this is Jesus speaking. He says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Let's pray one more time, can we? Just bow your heads with me. So Father and Son, we thank you for sending the Holy Spirit into the world. We thank you that he is our helper. We pray that you would um, see fit to prompt him to move among us today. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would do the work that you've said here that you do 
And we ask that you do it today in our midst. We pray that you'd reveal truth to us. We pray that you would convict those who are not yet in you of sin and righteousness and judgment. In grace, would you do this? We trust that it's your work. I pray that you, Holy Spirit, would guard my mouth and guide my mouth now to speak what is true and right, helpful according to your word, so that your people would be blessed and sanctified, uplifted, and those who are not yet yours may have opportunity to respond. We ask you to make it so. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So here's our roadmap for, the, for today. I, I want to quickly show you in this text one motive for participating in the Holy Spirit's work that is gonna, we're revisiting from chapter 14. It's just a motive that it's here and I want to point it out because it's a great reminder of why we should be anxious and eager to join the Holy Spirit in his work. And then I want to look at those three parts of the Holy Spirit's work that we saw here about sin and righteousness and judgment, that convicting work that the Spirit does. Talk about that and try and unpack the meaning of those. And with each of those, I'd like to do this. I'd like to give you an application of the truth we're gonna see here. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I wanna give you an application. And if you are a follower of Jesus, I wanna give you an application as well. So one for those of you who don't believe, one application for those who do for each of those three things. Is that okay? Decent roadmap? Cool, all right, let's do that. So the first thing is that motive. And and the motive is the same one we saw in John 14. One of the reasons to join the work of God in the world, the work he's doing through the spirit that's talked about here, is that it brings peace to a troubled heart. If you're a follower of Jesus, you know that he's told us, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. Does anyone know the rest of it? For I have overcome the world. We have these great CDs. If you have kids, I'd highly recommend these Seeds CDs where they just, uh, they're, they're worship songs, but they're just scripture. That's all they are. They don't add any words to scripture. They just sing them. And we have one that has that text and it says, take heart, take heart. I have overcome the world. Every time we have that playing as I'm driving around with the kids, I just start to cry. And the kids look at me like I'm crazy. Like what is going on with you? And I'm like, I just really want you to get this truth. I just really, I just really, really want you to get it. To which, you know, my kids are like, yeah, dad, we get it, we get it. I'm like, no, I don't think you do. Like, (laughs) I just want you to understand you're gonna have trouble, but take heart. He's overcome the world. My kids are sweet to me. We were watching Frozen 2 the other day. Anybody seen Frozen 2? Yeah. So fun movie, terrible, terrible theological messages. (laughs) So we're watching this movie and this is my kids because they're, they're just like, dad, you know, you don't have to worry, you know, sort of deal. My kids love to put me at ease. So we're watching the movie. And if you've seen it, I mean, spoiler alert, right? They have these, the wind spirit and the, they're introducing the wind spirit and the fire spirit. And the, I don't remember all the, like the elements of the earth are spirits and they're moving. And as they're introducing them and Elsa's singing about them or talking about them, my daughter goes, dad, don't worry. We don't believe this. <laughs> to which I said, amen, sister. That's right. My kids are a blessing. So so listen, here's the thing. Here's the thing. He wants you to join him in his work and he wants to motivate you by understanding that as you join him in his work, it gives peace to your troubled heart when you have trouble in the world. And let me show you where I see that, okay? So the first thing you see is in verse five there. So just go back to the text with me and look. He said, I didn't see these things in verse four. He says, I didn't say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. So he's gonna start talking about then leaving them. But now I'm going to him who sent me and none of you asks me, where are you going? Well, that's an interesting statement because if you've been with us tracking through John, in John 13 and in John 14, Peter asks in John 13, where are you going? 
And Thomas doesn't ask that exact question, but something pretty similar to it. In John 14, only a few verses later, they seem to have both asked Jesus, where are you going? So what could Jesus mean here in verse five when he says, none of you asks me, where am I going? Well, probably what he means is this. When they ask those questions in John 13 and John 14, their focus seemed to be more on their loss than on what he was up to in the world. So they're grieving, as they should, that Jesus is going away. But essentially what Jesus is saying is when he says, you didn't, you've not asked where I'm going, he really means you've not asked with an eye to understand what I'm up to. You've been more concerned with yourselves and what your loss is going to look like and less concerned with how I'm moving in the world and how my departure means more good things are coming that I'm on the move, right? That my death is gonna bring about a revolution in, in the way people relate to God. I am absolutely carrying forward the purposes of God. One of the things he's gonna get at here is by sending the spirit into the world. One of the markers of the kingdom of God is that the spirit is actively moving in that kingdom. So the spirit's presence in the world with us now is an indicator and a promise that the kingdom is coming. Do you know that? Every time you see the Holy Spirit do any of the work that the Holy Spirit talks about doing, whether it's that sanctifying work in our own hearts, that purifying us, or it's empowering us to work, or it's the work that he talks about here, doing the lives of those who don't yet believe. Any work of the Spirit is like shouting out to us, saying the kingdom is here because Christ has come, but not yet in its fullness, but it's coming. Don't worry, the Spirit's work is evidence. It's a promise. If you've taken up that challenge that we gave a couple weeks ago to, <clears throat> to memorize Romans 8, you, uh, you may not have gotten there yet, but in the, in the 20s, when you get into the 20s, the early 20s there in Romans chapter 8, one of the things that calls the Holy Spirit is the first fruits of the Spirit. He's talking about, in Romans 18, the suffering that's not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. And in talking about that suffering, he's talking about the creation and it's groaning and it's looking to us to say, oh, when the people get, get adopted and get their new glorified bodies, when that all comes to fulfillment, then we'll get set free from our bondage to corruption. That's how Romans 8 talks about this, this journey. And it says... The creation itself is not the only ones, not the only thing groaning. He says, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. What he's saying there is a lot, but if I can boil it down for our purposes today, it's this. He's saying the spirit's presence is a first fruits of the kingdom to come. That where the spirit is, the kingdom is coming. And so we see the spirit at work and we remember these work. Now, so he said to them, you, you seem more focused, less focused on what the kingdom is doing, what, what's happening in my kingdom and how I'm expanding it and more concerned with yourselves. So when he says, then you have sorrow because I've spoken to you about persecution, you have sorrow because I've talked to you about going away, you need to redirect your attention. So at least some of that sorrow he's pointing out is coming from being more concerned with self and less concerned with what he's doing in the world. And so then when he goes into this work of the spirit and what it's up to, church, do you see that what he's doing is he's saying, it's not this cure-all for our sorrow and for our troubled hearts, but it is a guarantee that the life that spends itself on service to God in the power of the spirit will find itself regularly renewed in joy and regularly renewed in peace. And it's the same thing he told us in John 14. So he must seem to want us to get this. One of the motives for serving him is that as you serve him, you will invite persecution, you will invite more difficulty, you will sacrifice, there will be hardship. But in the midst of all that, you will find 
that there is peace and there is joy that continues to flow from a fountain that is made available to you. And you access that and you, you feel the need for it and therefore access it and find it poured out because, because you give yourself to the work of the Spirit through you. Yes? That's one of the motives he's trying to point out here. Not that life is easy, but that there is the Spirit moving. So peace for troubled hearts. So with that motive then in mind, that's just a quick piece here at the beginning, how he starts this, this passage. Let's turn our attention now to these three works of the Spirit. And I wanna show you something about them. So the first thing, well, let's read verse eight again and let me show you something about that. So he says in verse seven, if I go, I'll send the helper to you. I'll send the Holy Spirit to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. All right, so there's kind of our key verse and we need to understand what he's getting at in a couple ways. So the first thing is we need to understand what he means when he says convict. There's two possibilities here. He could be talking about kind of like the conviction that might happen in a courtroom where the Holy Spirit is like the prosecuting attorney and God is the judge and he's saying about the world, I convict them that they are guilty of sin. I convict them that they are guilty of these things and God, the judge, sort of slams the gavel down. That's one possibility, but it's actually not the kind of conviction he's talking about here. It's not conviction I, I cause you to be guilty. He's talking about conviction that happens in the heart of a person that causes them to see their guilt. Yes, because that's the other possibility. And the key understanding here is how this word concerning works in the text. So if he had wanted to say that the Holy Spirit is going to convict the world as guilty of sin, he would have written it as this. He would have said, I, uh, the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin. But he didn't say of sin. He said convicts the world what? Concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now just think for a moment with me that that word concerning is very important because what he's saying is the Holy Spirit's gonna come and show the world that it's wrong in its understanding of these things, sin and righteousness and judgment. And he's gonna correct their view. He's gonna offer them a new view. It also wouldn't make a lot of sense to say that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of righteousness. Why would you be convicted if you were righteous? So that's not a phrase that would make any sense. So Jesus says he's gonna convict the world concerning sin, concerning righteousness, concerning judgment. And what he means by that is that he is going to be at work in those who don't believe so that they might see something that they hadn't seen before about sin, about righteousness, about judgment. Do you, you follow that? Everybody make sense? The other thing to make sure that we remind ourselves is that whenever John in the Gospel of John refers to the world, he's not just talking about the physical place where we live. He's talking about it as like a spiritual uh, area, like a sphere where spiritually what's happening is rebellion against God and, a, and an unwillingness to accept Jesus as king. So the kingdom of God is anywhere in the Bible, in the gospels in particular, the kingdom of God is anywhere where Jesus is ruling and reigning, yes? And so when John talks about the world, he's not talking about Mechanicsburg, PA, like we live here in this physical location. He's talking about the place that is an act of rebellion spiritually against God. So that's how we know that the Spirit's work that's being talked about here is actually the work that he does in the hearts and minds of those who don't yet believe because he's talking about the Spirit's work in the world. Now, the interesting thing here is this is the one place in the Scriptures where we expressly see what the Spirit does in the life of someone who doesn't believe. Almost every other time when we see the Holy Spirit talked about, it's talking about what he does in the lives of believers. 
the purifying work that he does, the revealing work that he does, the empowering work that he does. That's talked about again and again. This is the one place where the focus is not on what he does in those of you who are believers, but what he does in those of you who are not yet believers. So what we wanna do today is in essence, put the work of the, the spirit under a microscope. Because how often have you thought, yes, I know Holy Spirit's in the world, but how much time have you really spent examining what it is that the Holy Spirit does? The Holy Spirit is unseen, and yet he moves and blows. Like, you know, Billy Graham used to say, like the wind. I can't see the wind, but I can see the effects of the wind, right? That's how the Holy Spirit works. We see his effects. We see his movement. And so I would encourage all this, believer, not believer, if, if there is a spirit that is from God that's moving in the world, wouldn't we want to know something about what that spirit is doing? So my encouragement today is we're going to put that under the microscope because that's what Jesus is doing for us here in John 16. So let's look phrase by phrase now. Let's look at that first one where he says, the spirit convicts the world concerning sin. So the first thing that we need to see there is what he means. And it's somewhat straightforward. When he says he convicts the world concerning sin, it is what it sounds like. He's saying that the spirit shows people that they are guilty of rebelling against God in their thoughts, in their words, and in their actions. That the Holy Spirit, if you're not a follower of Jesus, makes a practice of trying to show you in your heart and in your mind that you are guilty of having rebelled against God. Now, that doesn't sound pleasant to receive that kind of work, but stay with us because that is the first word. Every one of us who has come to Jesus in this room, who has believed in him, has had a moment where we understood that we were guilty, yes? And I was seven when I came to Jesus. I can still remember the weight of the guilt that I felt. Because I thought I was so good. As a seven-year-old kid, I really thought I was good. It's a rule follower, you know, like parents pretty well pleased with me. And I remember the Holy Spirit causing it to dawn on me that I was guilty. I was guilty of rebelling against God. I wouldn't have put it in those words at seven years old. But the weight of it hit me. I knew I was guilty. There was no doubt about it. And anyone who's come to Jesus has that moment has that moment of going, I am guilty. And we have that moment because that's what the Holy Spirit does. He convicts the world, which is what we were, part of the world, the people in rebellion against God. He convicts us concerning our sin. Now, in verses nine and 10 and 11, he's gonna give, in verse eight, he said, he convicts the world concerning these three things. And then he's gonna give the reason why he does that in verse nine, 10, and 11 for each one of those three things. So look at verse nine. Because in verse nine then, he goes on to say, concerning sin, and he convicts the world concerning sin because they do not believe in me. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm the only way to have that guilt removed. And so when the Holy Spirit comes in to convict you that you are in fact guilty of rebelling against God in your thoughts, in your words, in your action, because your very nature is to rebel against him. When the Holy Spirit does that, he's doing that because you haven't believed in Jesus. So your guilt hasn't been taken away. And do you know that the great thing about Jesus saying this exact phrase, he's going to do this because you haven't believed in me, indicates that he wants you to believe in him that there's an invitation to believe. You're guilty because you haven't believed. The Holy Spirit's gonna reveal that to you so that you might believe, in essence, is what Jesus is saying. Now, that's pretty straightforward. 
Can I give a couple of just, just implications here now or applications for those of you who are not followers and then those of you who are. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, there's essentially kind of two versions of that. I hope I'm not oversimplifying this, but some of you are irreligious, which means you don't believe in God. Maybe you're more secular in your worldview. And then some of you are religious, but your religion doesn't lead you to believe in Jesus. So you, you believe in certain laws, tenets, religious principles, certain system of religion, but you're not a follower of Jesus. So you wouldn't be secular. You believe God exists. You just believe Jesus isn't the way to get there. He's not the revelation of God. Let me offer a thought for each of you. So my, for those of you who are irreligious, let me ask this question of you, invite you to ask this question of yourself. Have you ever felt guilty for doing anything? Have you ever felt that you did something and you know you were wrong? Most people answer that question, yes, I find, as I've had these conversations. And if that's the case, I would just ask the question, why? If God doesn't exist, if you have a secular worldview, if you're irreligious, if God doesn't exist, why are you guilty? Why do you feel wrong? I mean, is it just that you had a moral code you were brought up with and it's kind of lingering on you and you haven't been able to get rid of it yet? Or is it that you have formed your own sort of right and wrong, ideas of right and wrong? They didn't come from God, but you've got them and you, you formed them and maybe you're guilty of violating them and that's why you feel guilty. I just find that you really need to wrestle with that question of why do I feel guilt? Why do I feel guilt as if I've done something wrong if I'm the one who establishes what is right and wrong, which is true if God doesn't exist. We all are establishing that ourselves or the society in which we live. And I would encourage you, I don't, think, I don't think just I violated the moral code I set up explains very well the kind of weight of guilt that we tend to feel when we know we've done something wrong, yes? So I just would encourage you, think through that. Could it be that there's a spirit from God who's in the world, who is the one that's convicting you and that's why you feel conviction? Is that possible? That's what the scriptures seem to be saying here, that that's what's happening in your heart, in your mind, that's the case. But if you're religious, if you're uh, of a mindset that says, oh, I believe in God, but I don't believe Jesus is the representation of God. The question I'd ask you is, is almost the reverse, is why, when you felt guilty, has that not crushed you completely and utterly? Why is it that you've been able to go on in life? Because here's the deal, if we get right with God based upon a set of religious sort of laws that we follow and then we break those, we've essentially undone the way that we get to him. And if we've undone the way to get to him, then we should be absolutely crushed. And yet most of us find a way to move on when we feel convicted, when we, feel, when we know we're guilty. We're like, I, I broke this tenant. I did it, I was wrong. Most of us find a way to, to move on. Is it possible for you that what's happening is it's the Holy Spirit convicting you. But the great thing about when the Holy Spirit convicts you of your guilt over sin is that he points you towards a way out. So the reason that you're not just absolutely crushed by the revelation of your guilt is because the Spirit might be at work doing something that you don't know it's him, but it's him. And in subtle ways, he's pointing you to the fact that you can be forgiven and it's not based upon your ability to follow the law or the rules better next time. But there's another way. Does that make sense? So I'll ask those questions. Now, believers, those of you who are followers of Jesus, what's the application for us here as we look at what Jesus says about conviction of sin? Well, one thing came to mind, there's many, but I would just encourage us, can we remember that we need to be a people who practice confession, confession of sin to one another, and, and in a specific way, not just confession of sin, but confession of sin with hope, 
Hope in the knowledge that as we confess our sin, he is faithful to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John says. That when we confess, when we bring our sins to him, he forgives us. Because can I just tell you, for your friends uh, who are, let's say for our friends who are irreligious, just the act of confession and humbling ourselves and saying, I am guilty, might be helpful for them in seeing, well, gosh, if, if my friend recognizes his or her guilt, perhaps I have some too. Maybe they'll see the Holy Spirit's convicting work because the Holy Spirit convicts believers too. You know this as well, right? That's not what he's talking about here, but the Holy Spirit convicts us too of sin. The other side of that confession is confessing with hope because those of our religious friends who might feel crushed by their own violation of moral code would have put in front of them the kind of confession that confesses and is humble and is broken by sin, but also recognizes that we are indeed forgiven, that the blood of Jesus is sufficient to cover our sin. If a follower of Jesus confesses their sin, do you know that they're not, they're not completely undone by that? And do you know why? Because our hope is never in our ability to follow the rules. Never has been and it never will be and it never can be. Our hope is in the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Jesus for our sin. He's paid the penalty. He's paid it. And now as we come to him in confession, there will never be a day that the blood of Jesus will be insufficient to find forgiveness for us. We will come and we will not have the day where he says, you know, that's one time too many. It's one time too many. I'm sorry, not this time. That would degrade the sacrifice of Jesus, the all-sufficient sacrifice of our King who has died and risen. Practice confession with hope. The next thing that we see here is that the Spirit convicts the world concerning righteousness. So let's look at that next one now. He says that in verse eight and then he explains it in verse 10. So conviction concerning righteousness is really the other side of the coin from conviction concerning sin. So when it says that the Holy Spirit convicts the world concerning righteousness, what he's convicting the world of is that they don't have a sufficient kind of righteousness that the righteousness they possess, which may be moral goodness, moral upstandingness, there might be all kinds of goodness, but none of it is sufficient. It's an insufficient kind of righteousness. The Holy Spirit is at work. If you're not a follower of Jesus, one of the works you'll find the Holy Spirit will do in your heart is not only to convince you that you're guilty of sin, but perhaps then you might say, well, I'm guilty of sin, but deep down, I'm really a good person. And because I'm a good person, I can make up for the guilt that I have over the sin that I did. That's a pretty normal kind of way to think often. And what Jesus is saying here is the Holy Spirit won't just convict concerning sin, that in fact you are guilty, but the Holy Spirit will come to the other side of that coin and say, and by the way, you don't have a sufficient kind of righteousness to be reconciled to God. You need a different kind of righteousness. That's what Jesus is getting at here about the Holy Spirit's work. Let's look at why he says that's gonna happen. Look at verse 11 with me. In verse 11, oh, sorry, 10, I skipped one. Verse 10, he says, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. So what is Jesus saying there? Well, what he's saying is this. He's saying, look, I've been in the world and while I've been in the world, I am the perfect representation of the righteousness of God on display. Yes, Jesus is that. Absolutely. So Jesus, in his human life, displayed the absolute perfect righteousness of God. No sin in his nature, no sin in his action, no sin in his thought. He put that on display. And when people encountered Jesus, one of the things, in, in, along with many, one of the things that would happen is you would encounter Jesus and go, 
He's different than I am. He has a righteousness I do not have. In fact, it's evident he has the righteousness of God and therefore what stands out in contrast is what? I don't. Now what's he saying? I'm gonna sin because I'm leaving, because I'm going away. Somebody has to still do that work. Those of you who are not in Christ, some, you still need to look at something that represents the perfect righteousness of God so that you can see that you don't possess it. So who's gonna do that work? Jesus is gone. Who's gonna do it? The Spirit's gonna do it. So the Spirit's gonna come and he's gonna reveal the righteousness of Jesus to you. He's gonna show you exactly what it means to be righteous in every shred, fiber of your being. For there to be no thought, no action, no attitude that is in any way unrighteous. That's pretty remarkable, right? That's what Jesus is saying the Spirit is gonna do now. So let's, let's then look. What are the implications of this? Can I just explain? Now, this is not a guarantee. This is exactly how it always works. But for those of you who are not believers, here's the application for you, okay? Can I just explain what this process might look like? And I've seen this a number of times. So first, he's gonna show you that you're guilty of sin. That's what the Spirit does. We saw that already. He's gonna show you that you're guilty of sin. When I, when I say he's gonna show you that you're guilty of sin, I need you to understand, I mean, he's really going to show you. I don't just mean that you're gonna get a little twinge of like, oh, I might not be, I might not have it all together. I mean, he's going to show you the weight of your rebellion and the cost of it. He's gonna show that to you. Now, here's what happens in response often. You're going to be, when you really see that, you're gonna be distraught, maybe even despairing. And probably, you're gonna do what most of us do. You're gonna start bargaining with God. And that bargaining usually looks two ways. That bargaining looks like saying, but God, I did all this good stuff in my past. And then the other side is to say, and I promise to do a lot of good stuff in the future. That's usually what our bargaining looks like. But God, see how good this was and this was and this was. You might find yourself doing that, even just sort of internally in your dialogue with God. But God, and then, you know, I mean, how many of us have been, you know, in a tough spot and sort of done the bargaining where we go, if you'll get me out of this, I promise, I promise. And I think you might find yourself bargaining in both those ways, about your past, about your future. But here's what happens next then as you do that. The spirit will show you that you don't have any righteousness to fall back on. So guilt of sin. But then as you start bargaining, what happens is he points to your past and he says, all that stuff that you think was so good actually doesn't amount to righteousness. He's gonna show you that it was insufficient. And then he's gonna point to the future and he's gonna go, by the way, you don't have any resource to draw upon by which you can make any promise of actually fulfilling the promises you're making to me now. I know you're saying you will, but I'm gonna tell you that you won't. And by the way, even if you did keep that promise, it would be just like those works from your past not sufficiently good enough. Now at this point, as this internal dialogue happens, here's what happens next, is that you begin to feel really desperate because now you've been told you're guilty and you don't have any righteousness to draw on and you tried to bargain and that got shut down. So where does that leave you? What happens next is one of two things, I find. As you feel that desperation, Many people will try to numb themselves by distracting themselves with whatever your addiction of choice is. Might be entertainment, just put a screen in front of yourself. 
Might be whatever your, whatever your hobby is, get out in the garage, tinker on the car and don't think about it. Might be any kind of substance. You, you get what I'm saying, right? Can I encourage you? Don't do that. Because if you will resist the urge to just stop thinking about the weight of everything that you've just kind of been dealing with God about, what happens next is glorious. What happens next is grand. If you will choose to stay in that conversation with God instead of numbing yourself and distracting yourself, what happens next is this. If you don't numb yourself, the Spirit will show you the righteousness of Jesus. We just said that's his job, right? That's what we saw here Jesus saying. The Holy, the Holy Spirit's gonna come, convict the world of its insufficient righteousness because Jesus is gone. So the Holy Spirit now is the one who's representing that. But here's the beauty. When you see the righteousness of Jesus, even as you see it and know you have nothing like that to draw upon, there is this promise from the Spirit that comes with the revelation of the righteousness of Jesus that he can give his righteousness to you if you will ask. The thing that you need. So that's why you don't, that's why this, if you won't numb yourself, there's such joy and gloriousness to be found because he doesn't, he does not reveal the righteousness of Jesus just for you to go, I can't measure up and there's nothing I can do about it. But he reveals it in such a way that you know, you will know, I promise you, because this is what the spirit does. He comes to you and he says, I want to show you how righteous Jesus is. I want to show you how good he is. I'm gonna reveal it to you and you don't have that, but he can give it to you. I can impart it to you if you'll receive it. Now, that's gladness and gloriousness, yes? Now again, I don't know that every one of those you know, conversation steps will be exactly how it works for you, but I, I find it time and time again, that's kind of the bargaining is there and the desperation is there. And I just wanna encourage you, walk through it. I mean, think about it this way. When I say that the spirit reveals the righteousness of Jesus, he doesn't just do it so that you end up going, well, I can never measure up. That would be like a parent who just continually showed their kids pictures of puppies and said, but I'm never giving you a puppy. Like over and over. Like a good parent doesn't do that, right? You look at the pictures of the puppies because you're gonna what? You're gonna get a puppy. Some of you, maybe, maybe you've done bad parenting. Don't show your kids a lot of puppy pictures, right? He's showing you the picture of the righteousness of Jesus saying, I'm, I can give this to you. I can give this to you, all right? Now, what about for those of us who believe? So what do we do with this? And let me just, a really simple application for us here. You participate in the Spirit's work in the world, convicting the world of righteousness by living out the righteousness that's been given to you in Christ. Do you see how imperative it is that we would be demonstrations of righteousness? If that's one of the works the Holy Spirit is doing, he's trying to show the world, hey, you have an insufficient righteousness and you need, a better, you need a better righteousness and Jesus can give it to you, then we as followers of Jesus better look like people who have received that and are living at it. We're, we're not perfect and we never will be, but do you know that you've been made righteous in Christ Jesus? You've had his righteousness, somebody say yes to that. You've had his righteousness imparted to you. It's been given to you. That's who you are. The very core of your being you have been transformed and changed. It's miraculous. It's amazing. You did not deserve it, nor did I, but it has taken place. And that righteousness now is making its way out in you. How imperative 
that we would be a people who display the righteousness of Jesus in the world. That's how we participate with the Spirit in this work. And can I just say too, as you display that, the righteousness of Jesus on display always seems to offer to those who see it that they could have it too, not cause them to say, well, that person is just so good and so righteous that I could never be like them. If that's how you're communicating the righteousness of Jesus, something is off. Because it makes you look great, but it doesn't communicate to them that they can have what you have, which you never earned, okay? Now, the last thing is that the Spirit convicts the world concerning judgment. And we find this in verse eight and then in verse 11. So when it says the Spirit convicts the world concerning judgment, here's what that means. It doesn't mean that it convicts the world that there's going to be a judgment. It means that they are convicting, that the Holy Spirit is convicting the world regarding their ability to pass right judgment. So in other words, in the same way their righteousness is insufficient, the judgment of the world is insufficient. So here's the way to think about that. The Holy Spirit is in the business of highlighting what is good and true and beautiful. Good and true and beautiful. The Holy Spirit's in that business. That's what he does. And when we are not in Christ Jesus, we aren't able to see the true nature of goodness, the true nature of beauty, and the true nature of truth. And so we tend to call things true that aren't true. We tend to call things beautiful that aren't beautiful. And we tend to call things good that aren't good. And that's because the scriptures say that until we come to Jesus, we have these blinders on that are put there by God's enemy. And it's not until Christ Jesus takes them off of us that we're able to see. Now, I know that that's offensive. Like, I I get it. If you're not a believer, I get that what I've just told you is that you're not able to identify good, beautiful, and true. But none of us can without God's help, without God causing us to give, giving us a new lens, a new set of glasses to put on to actually see. Because none of us see, none of us have 20-20 vision. We're all broken. All of our ability to call something good and right and true, it's all fractured. But then Jesus comes in and he, he puts a new lens on you, puts a new set of glasses on you. And all of a sudden you say, aha. Like for those of you who had glasses, do you remember when you went to the eye exam and it had been blurry and the board at the front of the classroom, you couldn't see it, couldn't make it out. Somebody found the right prescription, they put it on you and all of a sudden what? You went, oh, praise God, I can see. Right? You couldn't even get the E on the eye chart. And you're like, oh my goodness, this is, a, this is a world of difference. I was calling my E's P's and my Q's R's and I said, I just was off. And now I have a new lens. That's what he means when he says the Holy Spirit's gonna convict the world concerning judgment. And then why, verse 11, does he say that the Holy Spirit does that? Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. In other words, what he's saying is the misapplication of calling something good that's not good, calling something beautiful that's not beautiful, true that's not true, comes from the enemy. It doesn't come from God. And because that comes from the enemy, because it's his view of the world that we're subscribing to, that, that way is condemned because Jesus has condemned all that the devil stands for. It won't last. It's still present in the world today, but it will pass away and it will be done away with. And he's saying, I want you to come out of that way of seeing things and I want you to come in to the right way of seeing things. I want you to see for the first time, truly see through the lens that God can give. Now, that's what he means there. What are the implications of that? Let's just quickly invite ourselves to see too. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you may find the Spirit is highlighting at points where you called 
things good that weren't good. He might be highlighting those kinds of things for you. And even as he highlights them, he's trying to show you that he can give you a new lens. So let me ask you a question, maybe as, as just a piece of evidence that perhaps this is true. Have you ever loved something that hurt you? Have you ever loved something that harmed you? And a lot of us would probably say, yeah, absolutely. And in spite of knowing that it hurt us, you kept loving it, didn't you? Why would we do that? Perhaps it's because we have a lens that's not helping us see what is good and beautiful and true in the way that we really need to. Perhaps that's evidence that we do actually need the Holy Spirit to come in and give us that new lens that we're talking about because we misidentified things and they ended up causing us harm and we thought they were good. We thought they were beautiful. We thought they were true when in fact they were a lie. But what about for those of us who are believers? Can I encourage you? I mean, we're known so often um, for what we stand against, yes? And there are things we need to stand against in the world. That's okay. I'll, I'll take that if I'm standing on the side of righteousness for what is good. But do you know that it would be so good for the world to know us as people who speak out and affirm what is good and beautiful and true? Wouldn't it be great to be a people who just every time we saw, every time we saw something that was good, every time we saw something that was beautiful, every time we saw something that was true according to God's truth, that we just celebrated it. We said, this is true. This is good. This is right. And to do that everywhere, all the time, every time we saw something that reflected the image of God, we just pointed it out. We just said, man, this is fantastic. Look, first, one of the things... Don't you love here that it says the Holy Spirit convicts the world, which means that it's not your job or my job to do that. The Holy Spirit does that. Now he may do it through us, through asking questions and humbly engaging in conversation, but we don't have to be a people who are running around all the time going, let me convict you and let me convict you and let me convict you and let me convict you. But rather, can I encourage you, followers of Jesus, to learn to ask some really good questions so that when you see friends, family members who are experiencing some of this conviction, if the Holy Spirit's at work, and this is what the scriptures say he does, then can we expect that we'll see this as we look? Okay, so I expect to see this in the lives of my friends who are not believers. I expect to see this work of the Holy Spirit. And one of the greatest things I can do is learn to ask the question, hey, it seems like you're struggling with this. Is there anything that you think God might be doing or saying to you through that? It's a pretty simple question. It's just inviting them to see that maybe this is the Holy Spirit at work. And then if they, you know, and then just engage the conversation from there. But just inviting people to see, is it possible that God's at work in this situation? And if he is, do you think there's anything he, he might be trying to show you? Just let them, and let them discern. Because again, if the Holy Spirit's at work, who will reveal the truth to them? Who will be at work showing them what he's wanting to do? The Holy Spirit is not trying to be mysterious here. All right, so those are a couple applications for us. Now, let me invite the worship team to come up. Just want us to take a little time to reflect on what we're hearing here about the Spirit's work. Again, we don't always sort of put it under the microscope. And so we've done that a bit today. I want you, even as they're coming now, stay with me, listen to me, church, because we're just gonna have a chance to reflect and then we'll sing together and, and that'll be our time together. <clears throat> As we're examining the work of the Holy Spirit, let me remind you that at the cross, at the cross of Jesus, the guilt that the Holy Spirit convicts us of for sin, at the cross we see that it's paid for and can be taken away, yes? And because Jesus has been raised from the dead, 
we know that he can give us the righteousness that we've been convicted about by the Holy Spirit that was insufficient. He can give that because he rose from the dead. He didn't stay in the grave. So the guilt can be covered by the cross and the righteousness can be imparted because the resurrection has happened. And do you know that as the Holy Spirit convicts you of judgment? Because the Holy Spirit lives in those who believe in Jesus, he can replace the old lens, the old way of judging with a new lens, a new way of seeing and discerning. It's all available. It's all available to anyone who would come to Christ. So as we just hear this song now and reflect on it, you may want to reflect on the lyrics. That would be wonderful. We'll have them up. I want to encourage you to, you may just want to close your eyes and take a moment and think, Holy Spirit, where are you at work? And you've been asking me to participate with you and I've just been resisting it or I I just haven't seen it. Would you show it to me? If you're a believer, maybe you could ask that question. If you're not a follower of Jesus, my hope would be that what you might consider in this time is just ask the kind of work that the Bible just talked about, that the Holy Spirit does, is, has that been happening in me? Just ask, has, has, the, has that been happening in me? And if so, am I willing to maybe just admit for the first time that that in fact is the Spirit of God doing that? Trying to draw me to Christ, draw me to leave behind the belief that I'm in charge of me, and that I owe my allegiance to the one who created me and would redeem me in Christ Jesus if I would come. Let me pray and then we'll, we'll reflect. So Holy Spirit, we thank you and we pray that you would take your word now and apply it to our lives, apply it into our hearts and minds, each one of us uniquely as we need it. Thank you that you can do that. We ask you to. We pray even as we reflect on your work from this really beautiful song that's been written, we pray that what would rise in our hearts is a sense of celebration, acknowledgement, Holy Spirit, that you're powerful, mighty, fully God at work sent by the Father, sent by the Son, here among us, and we bow to you. We bow to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.